read with me from page 662 in your pew Bibles if you can. Just open up there. That's Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. Page 662, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. And this is the story of the faith of the centurion, uh, a story where we're, we're going to notice or witness what I'm calling the authority of trust. All right, trust and relationship, authority and relationships, authority that Christ has over us and things like that. So when and it says this, so chapter 8, verses 5 through t- 13, it says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, Capernaum, tomato, tomato, don't don't email me and say, you said it wrong, because I've noticed that it's said different ways in different places. So uh, so when Jesus had entered Capernaum, he, uh, a, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffer, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? So we see a willingness right there that Jesus would go and do that, right? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now, that's got to be a kick in the teeth, right? So he's saying this to a Roman centurion that he can't find faith in Israel as strong as a Roman centurion's. That's a kick in the teeth. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside, right? So you, you people that are standing in front of me, not you guys, but Jesus standing in front of Jesus, you who you know, are all religious and everything else, you, you think you're going to be there, but you're going to be thrown outside, right? But the subject of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment, right? Um, by healing the centurion's servant, Jesus establishes his power over the material world, but it's the spiritual reality of faith which really draws Jesus, uh, draws our attention, right? Um, we give witness to Jesus' authority, I think, in our lives by our obedience to his teaching and our willingness to, to live in submission to his word. Uh, In this instant, Jesus demonstrates his power with an act of healing, obviously, and this story is remembered as sort of the healing of the centurion's servant, but the attention is really focused on the faith of this centurion, isn't it? Since Jesus immediately said yes to the guy's request, he goes, should I come, right? Should I come and and heal him? Uh, When he made the request, but the centurion continues and Jesus marvels at his faith. He marvels at his faith. I would like to Jesus to marvel at my faith. Wouldn't that be nice? And, you know, later other people will marvel at Jesus, you know, as he walks on the water or at the healing of the paralyzed man and all that kind of stuff. But what impresses Jesus is our faith, just our obedience, our our response, right? A real focus on the faith of the people with whom Jesus 
interacts is a pattern that we see often in the New Testament. This episode is one of Jesus' first public acts of ministry following the Sermon on the Mount, and then it continues to be a sort of a, a major shifting of the goalposts, right, for these people standing before him, because now inward faith, not external characteristics as they had thought, is now the sole membership requirement for the kingdom of God. It's the centurion's inward faith which initiates the encounter with Jesus and opens up the the opportunity for Jesus to heal this servant. Now, the initial dialogue between Jesus and the centurion is very significant. The centurion requests a healing of his servant. Jesus replies, uh, basically, I'll come and heal him, right? And the centurion, though, dismisses Jesus' intended action by replying that all Jesus needs to do is just say the word. Just say the word, and that healing would be accomplished. We find this statement to be sort of a play on words, don't we? Because Jesus is, after all, the word, the logos, as we see in the scriptures. Um, We're told in John chapter 1, verse 1, and John chapter 1, verse 14, that he is the logos, he is the living word of God, right? And in this context, however, coming from a centurion, speak, speak the word, right, also carries the connotation of command. When you speak, you have authority, you command. The centurion was this professional officer in the Roman army whose title originated from the number of 100 or century, you know, 100 legionnaires or soldiers at his command, right? The number of soldiers would expand over time, as did the reputation and the honor attached to that commander. The centurion is accustomed to having his words obeyed, accustomed to having his words obeyed. So he assumes rightly that Jesus' words would also be obeyed because he sees authority in Christ. In the, in the exercise of obedience to, and, and the obedience to authority, we find sort of this model of faith that is commended by Jesus himself, right? Most of us are acquainted with formal authority and informal authority. Formal authority is attached to a title or a position, police officer, you know, president, whatever, you know. Uh, More often, though, people have informal authority in their lives, right? We have people that have informal authority over us. And we'll listen to people that we trust, right? We listen to the people that we trust, and we we do what they ask, ask of us because we trust them. You know, if we don't trust leaders, right, even if they have formal authority over us, we often do everything we can to avoid doing what they tell us to do. We don't understand sometimes the intention of heart without trust. We don't hear someone clearly when they are telling us to do something, let alone their intentions or recognize the greater need for their request if we're just looking at them with a crooked eye or waiting for them to say something wrong, or waiting for something that we can use against them, right? You may be doing that to me right now. People often do that to pastors, right? In his classic book, Leadership Without Easy Answered, Ronald Heifetz, if I pronounce his name correctly, defines authority as conferred power to perform a service. 
conferred power to perform a a service. He notes that all authority ultimately is conferred uh, or, or bestowed or given, right? It's given if even subconsciously by one or many people to another or another group. Authority is conferred to someone more easily when, uh, you know, to some than others, right? We, we, don't, we don't just confer power easily or, uh, on people or authority easily on people. Not all authority relationships are the product of a conscious, you know, choice or a, de- or a deliberate conferring of power. They're often produced by habitual sort of deference over a long period of time. We just get used to following somebody. But the centurion possesses formal authority and he also recognizes that formal authority in Jesus. That's why the centurion can say with all confidence that Jesus' word would be obeyed. Do I feel that way, right? Nevertheless, Jesus obviously also wants the people to trust him, all the people around him. They must confer authority to him as well. And only then will obedience flow out of a sense of awe and of love. And then from Jesus' sort of formal and informal authority in this relationship. Matthew 17 is the account of the transfiguration. And I brought this up last week, I think. I think. And, and in verse 5, God the Father said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. That, that verse has just been stuck in my heart for weeks now. Just listen to him. In other words, choose to confer authority on Jesus, right? Giving him the right, not only the right to speak, but the honor of obeying his directives, his commands, his requests of your life. That's a big statement. Even when even when we don't understand him or agree with him. Trusting, because trusting that he knows best for us. That's a big deal. Because understanding often comes later. And agreement eventually follows experience. We want Jesus to be our puppet. We want to say, I'll do it only if you tell me what it, what it benefits me, what it does for me. I, when I can see the end game, then I'll obey you. That's not how the relationship works, is it? We often think that we know best for our lives, but we don't, which is why obedience, even when we don't understand, is extremely important. And it's a very unpopular thing for me to say these days, right? Without conferred authority, the relationship that we have with Jesus does not work, at least not 100%, right? It's not a peer-to-peer relationship. You're not equal with Jesus, neither am I. It's a sort of a king-vassal relationship. We steward all that he, he has or all that he is or all that he's bestowed upon us. And any relationship, whether formal or informal, is hindered by distrust, isn't it? Moms and dads, uh, married folks, you know what I'm talking about, right? Remember Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 21, whoever has my commands 
and keeps them is the one who loves me. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now, this says to us that love is not a prerequisite for a relationship, but it is a sign of relationship, right? So when Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, a public declaration in front of other people, Jesus is Lord, not being afraid, being bold with your relationship with Christ, open in front of everybody, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's saying that we confer authority to Jesus by that confession. A sign that we've placed our trust in him and a sign of love in this relationship that we have with him. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, he tells the story of the Brownsville neighborhood in New York City uh, where Joanne Jaffe, if I pronounce her name correctly, took over as head of the city's housing bureau and with, he, she had responsibility over the projects. And she created this thing called the Juvenile Robbery Intervention Program. And, but the people didn't trust her because they didn't trust cops, right? And uh, no progress was made at all. She didn't get anywhere until Thanksgiving of 2007 when Jaffe begged for, for and finally received $2,000 from the government, the local government, to buy a turkey for every family in her program and she delivered five of those turkeys herself, right? And in all five apartments, she remembers and describes that in every family there was hugging and crying. And to each family, she said the same thing. She said, I know sometimes you hate the police. I understand. But I just want you to know, as much as it seems that we are harassing you by knocking on your door, we really do care and we really do want you to have a happy Thanksgiving. Amen to that, right? Ultimately, between 2006 and 2011, robberies in the Brownsville neighborhood dropped by 80%. Joanne Jaffe did what she said she was going to do so the families trusted her, right? She earned their respect. She earned authority in their lives. They conferred authority on her because she was kind. Likewise, the centurion trusts Jesus. He trusts Jesus. And that trust is is evidence of love, right? That trust enables a relationship of authority and obedience which saves the life of the man's servant and transforms all those people around him. Another really meaningful illustration is of a leader who earned the trust of his followers came from the 2015 film McFarland USA about cross-country coach Jim White. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but he led the boys team to the state championship in 1987. As an outsider to the rural sort of Latino community, uh, White had to earn the trust of the boys and their parents. And the film shows him earning the family's trust by visiting their homes, by eating with them, and by thanking them for the privilege of doing so. Just being a neighbor, right? 
And in doing so, he shows that he can be one of them, just as Jesus showed solidarity with humanity by entering into our reality and living at, you know, as we do, enduring the suffering of life even farther than we do to death on a cross. So the question is, how do we submit to authority? Or do we? <laughs> do we always kind of look at our authority figures with a crooked eye? Do we always sort of sit there and say, I don't believe them, you know? There are a few public authorities right now who enjoy any measure of trust at all. I think we can all nod yes, yes to that one. In the U.S., uh, for instance, polls show a continued distrust in government and most public institutions. We simply do not trust. If we're not in the habit of submitting to authority in our day-to-day -day lives, then how are we to begin to live in submission to God's authority? I know that is a difficult question. It's not an easy one. So as a simple exercise, consider the Ten Commandments. I don't know when the last time you've ever read the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've never read them, but they're found in Exodus chapter 20. And I, I challenge you in the coming weeks, or actually this week, to, to read Exodus 20, read the Ten Commandments, and, and ask yourself this question, which is the hardest of the Ten Commandments for me to obey, right? Which is the hardest? And the passage begins like this. It says, and God spoke all these words. So he spoke. He is, that God's word is commanding. It's authoritative. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, right? Now notice that there is a defining of relationship. God is God, I am not, right? There's a difference in us. And then there's a reminder of his goodness to Israel that he brought about their salvation. Now this is very important. He brought about their salvation before he gave the Ten Commandments. Right? He brought about their salvation before he gave the Ten Commandments. And then, then he launches, then it launches into this list, Exodus 20. And I'm only listing the commandments and not all the descriptors which follow some of them. But they go in this order. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow to them or... Uh, or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Luke and Jonah. I'm picking on you guys. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now the Hebrew expression for the Ten Commandments occurring three times in the Old Testament in Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 4, and, and chapter 10 literally mean ten words right? 
So we refer to, the, uh, to Exodus 20 as the Decalogue. Deca meaning 10 in Greek and logos meaning word, right? So commandments, notice that commandments one through four teach love for God. It's about our relationship with, with the Lord. And then five through 10 speak of our horizontal relationships with the people around us. So one through four are for love for God, uh, five through ten is love for other people. And Augustine said, love God and do as you please. Why would he say that? Love God and do as you please. Well, because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, you naturally want to do what is good. You naturally take on God's heart for the world around you, for that relationship and the relationships all around you. So it makes very much sense. In other words, if you follow the first commandment, everything else falls into place with God and others. If you break into the other commandments, you automatically break the first. There are nine things, and we're not going to be here forever. Don't, don't let the word nine uh, frighten you. But there are nine things that I'd like to point out about the Decalogue. First, they reveal God's heart and who God is. They reveal God's heart and who God is. They're an expression of the lawgiver's heart and character. And so we typically don't like do's and don'ts in life. We don't like people telling us what to do. But the commandments not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like and his honor and his word and his majesty is all wrapped up in them. They tell us what matters to God. And we, we find out that we cannot disdain the law, the words that God speaks, without disdaining or disrespecting the lawgiver, right? Secondly, they set us apart, don't they? We are, we are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as it says in 1 Peter 2.9. We are God's people. We are different. We are set apart to live according to God's ways. Number three, they don't constrain, rather they provide freedom. They do not constrain, rather they provide freedom. And that's a, this is a really important one to me. This is the one I've been harping on for a long time. But God means to give us abundant life, as John 10, 10 tells us, and true freedom, as John chapter 8, verse 32 tells us. 1 John 5, 3 tells us his laws are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. So when you're driving you know, down the road, you appreciate the traffic laws because they provide order and safety for you, especially when you've got a kid in the backseat or something. You know, think about it. What would sports be like if, you, if there were no boundaries in sports? Well, take a look at this alpha video from session six, and I think you'll see. No sound. Greg's, Greg's fixing this out. If it can't be fixed, we'll just go on. Uh, don't worry about it, you guys. I'll just go on. It's 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 funny because they. It, you'll see later if we just keep the film rolling. 
they they get to this point where they're like, what if what if sports don't have any boundaries and they have these like wrestlers and you know the guy's got a guy down and the other guy taps out and another guy comes in and just hammers the guy, you know, you know the guy the guy's golfing and he just picks up the ball and runs over and drops it in the cup, you know, things like that. So it's but there are boundaries that we live with all the day that we appreciate, right? They really do. We live with good, good, good boundaries in many areas of life. So why would we have disdain for the boundaries which God places upon us? They're, they're, they're there for our own good. They are sincerely there for our own good. They're, he's not some sort of cosmic killjoy that's trying to, you know, pee on your campfire, so to speak, right? They are there for our own good. Can you say pee in church? I don't know. I just did. But anyway... But they're not, they're also not there to, to uh, they're, 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 they're not given to earn salvation. We got to understand that. You, the Christian message is definitely not, and let's say this really clearly, it's not that God has all these rules and I've got to follow them, and if I follow them, God will then love me and save me. That's not the Christian message at all. It's the exact opposite of the Christian message. That's not what happened in Exodus, if you remember. The Israelites were oppressed, and God said, I hear your cry, and I will save you because I love you. And when you are saved, and when you are free, and when you are forgiven, already I, and, uh, I will give you uh, a new way to live, right? A better way to live. That's what he's saying. So salvation isn't the reward for obedience, Salvation is the reason for obedience. Jesus doesn't say, if you obey my commandments, I will love you. He didn't say that at all. Instead, he first washes the disciples' feet, if you remember that story, and then he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience follows love, right? It follows obedience, or follows love. All of our doing is only because of what Jesus has first done for us, right? Next, they are more trustworthy than our own intuition or our own cultural code, what the world is telling us, right? We often say, you be you, I'll be me. No, God has defined relationship. God has defined the world. God has revealed himself to us from the outside through the scriptures. And so we live in this paradoxical age, right? This weird age where many will say right and wrong are what you decide for yourself. Yet these same people, these same people saying that to you will rebuke you for violating any number of assumed cultural commands. Amen, right. That is the absolute truth. As a culture, we might feel very free and quite liberal when it comes to sex and sexuality, but we can be absolutely fundamentalist when it comes to the moral claims of the sexual revolution, right? Old swear words uh, may not scandalize us anymore. Have you noticed that, right? But now there are other words, new words, new swear words, offensive slurs and insults that'll quickly put somebody out of polite company. We had a long discussion with two couples at my house last night about how just saying certain things will explode the conversation. Can't even have a logical conversation with people, it seems like, anymore. We are still a society with a moral code, although our moral code has shifted. 
But the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10. The way to find moral instruction is not by listening to your gut. That's not, the way, that's not where you get it. It's by listening to God. This is my son whom I love and I'm pleased with him. Listen to him, it says. If we want to know right from wrong, how to live the good life, how to live in a way that blesses friends and neighbors, we do things God's way. It is the best way for life. It's the way that brings peace. The church's most important, the the next one is the church's most important instruction has been based on the Ten Commandments, right? The church has historically put the Ten Commandments at the center of its teaching and its ministry, especially for children and new believers, right? So for centuries, catechetical uh, instruction was based on three things. It was based on the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to read later, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments, Right? That's, those are the things that they thought people needed to know to really understand this stuff. In other words, when people asked, how do we do discipleship? You know, how do we teach our kids about the Bible? What do new Christians need to know about Christianity as they start to grow in Christ? And their answers always included a heavy emphasis on the Ten Commandments. Next, they are critical to our understanding of the rest of the Old Testament law. They came from God as he spoke to the people face to face, and they came from Mount Sinai amidst fire and cloud and thick darkness and a loud voice, if you remember that. Exodus 20 makes a literal and spiritual high point in the life of Israel. It was a very, very significant moment. It's no longer the tablets, or it's no wonder the tablets uh, of, the, of the law, along with the manna and, and, and Aaron's staff, were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. It was so important. Now, there are many more laws in the Old Testament, right? But the, 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 these first ten are the foundational laws for all the rest. The Ten Commandments are like the Constitution for Israel, and what follows are sort of all the regulatory statutes. Following that, the, they are central to the ethics of the New Testament. They are central to the ethics of the New Testament. I sent out an email uh, about a, a vote going on. I'm not a very political guy from the pulpit at all, and I don't mean that to be political. I mean, we are Christians. We don't kill children, right? That vote is important because it is very simple. We don't kill children. I don't, I'm not, that's not a statement on a woman struggling and in poverty or anything like that. There are other options. We just value life. We don't kill children. We do not murder Amen. And that, that I, let's, let's clear that up. Because I, I, years ago, I had somebody, you know, kind of confront me about a, a statement I made. Uh, Virginia was placing a law or discussing a law whether or not they were going to abort children after birth. In other words, up to three years old. You think this crazy now? It's getting crazier, right? And, and this person was like, well, I, just, I don't agree with you. I'm like, well, we are Christians, You can disagree with me all you want, but you're you're disagreeing with God. We do not murder. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit worked up. 
they are central to the ethics of the New Testament. Think of Mark chapter 10, verse 17, for example. This is where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, right? Then he lists the second table of the law, the commandments which relate to his neighbor. And he says, Don't, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, Jesus was not laying out a path for, for eternal salvation or finding eternal life. We know from the rest of the story that Jesus is sort of setting this guy up for a fall because the one command he obviously didn't uh, say or he avoided in saying he skipped was do not covet. And this guy obviously did that. But it's noteworthy that when Jesus has to give a convenient summary of our neighborly duties to each other, how do we love our neighbors, he goes straight to the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? Uh, they are also relevant today. This is not some ancient dead uh, document that you know, was good for people way back when. They are relevant for us today. Can we keep the Ten Commandments perfectly? Absolutely not. I do not. You do not. Do they serve to show us and reveal in us our sin and lead us to the cross, lead us to salvation? Absolutely they do. But the commandments also show us the way to live, the way to love our neighbor, and the way to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we still need these ten words, and until Jesus comes back, they're not going to change, and they will be needed until that day. Have they been changed in some respects by the coming of Christ? For sure they have. They've, they've been transformed, but they're not trashed. We can't keep the Ten Commandments rightly unless we keep them in Christ, through Christ, and with a view to all, the all-surpassing greatness of Christ. As new creations in Christ, the law isn't only our duty, but it is our delight because it is so good. If we want to love Christ as he deserves and, and desires, we will keep these commandments. By healing the centurion's servant, Jesus establishes his power over the material world. But it's the spiritual reality of faith which, he, which, draws, which draws Jesus' attention. Um, we give witness to Jesus' authority in our lives by our obedience to his teachings and our willingness to live in submission to God's word. The question is, do you live in the authority of trust in your relationship with Jesus? Do you trust Jesus do you confer authority to him? Whatever your most challenging commandment is, make an intentional effort to live in obedience to it in the weeks leading up to Easter. That's my challenge. A simple act of obedience to God's word, uh, God, God's most well sort of known commandments proclaims to ourselves and also to the world around us that Jesus is the son of God and he is worthy of our ultimate faith. Sometimes I feel that evangelicalism, if we want to call ourselves that, got some negative connotations these days, but we'll call it because we don't have another term. 
really um, has gotten very lax with things. There's a sense of we need to have this awe and, a th- and majesty when we look at Christ. He's not just my buddy. He's not my fuzzy friend. He's not the guy that shows up only when I'm in trouble. He is my authority over my whole life. And that includes all aspects of my life. So that's my challenge to you. Read the Ten Commandments. Think about which one is the hardest for you to, um, to follow and to walk in and begin to be obedient there and begin to pray that God would answer you in that. Uh, this is the first Sunday of the month, so we're going to have communion today. Uh, this is the Lord's table. This is something we do with all uh, in a solemn nature, in respect to the Lord, in remembering what He's done for us. Uh, if you are not a person that has actually given your heart to Christ yet, there's no shame in sitting there and just observing. But we, this table is reserved for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus and, and are walking with Him. So. Uh, if you need to make a confession, if you need to pray and confess, I urge you to do that. Don't bring that to this table. Eat, I even say go as far as make a phone call before you come up here if you need to forgive somebody or you need to ask for their forgiveness or whatever. Uh, just go in the bathroom or you know, go back in the kitchen if you want and just make that phone call and before you bring that to the table. But we, we can practice this until the very end of the service. If you'll... Um, uh, stand up with me. We're going to read the, um, the Apostles' Creed. And uh, if you'll just follow along uh, out loud with me, we'll start right now. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, uh, if any of you get hung up on that word Catholic, we're obviously not a Catholic church. It doesn't mean Catholic as, as far as Catholicism. It means the body of believers across the world. That's what that means. So um, let me pray for us as we come to the table. Father, in, in your word it says, you, receive, you, you said to us, for I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new drink, the, 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 the new covenant in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Father, we read those words and we remember that moment you were in the upper room with those guys. And what an intimate moment that must have been. And maybe they didn't fully grasp the whole orb of what that meant at the time, but we in hindsight can see it. We know what happened. We know you went to the cross. We know you bled for us. We know your body was broken for us. And we have a God who sacrifices like that. We have a God that loves his people so much that he would do that. And the disciples are a great example 
of receiving that love and then later finding obedience to you. Father, we, we praise you that your gospel is centrally marked by that grace and mercy of your cross and your sacrifice for us and also the power of your resurrection from the dead. And we believe and we proclaim to the world and everyone in this room that we believe this and this makes a difference to us and we love you. We love you because you first loved us and we want to walk this out with you well. We want to listen to you. Come and bless us in this moment as we experience this practice of your table one more time. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.